At the most basic level, we need food and water for sustenance and shelter from the elements. And even though it may not seem like it when you watch television, we all really do want peace in our lives. We want a sense of purpose and belonging. To put it simply, we each want to feel satisfied with who we are and what we have. We all want good lives. Good morning. You are listening to an extended version of Your Community Spirit this morning. This is Orda Energymon. And this is Tree Song. And we are here to bring you, well, envirosocial talk or doom and gloom with a sense of humor, right? It's like... Um, yes, here we have both doom and gloom and a sense of humor. <laughs> Community Spirit, the show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again, the circle of friends, the circle of family, the circle of being. Wake up. Be healthy and therefore wealthy. To the peace and joy of Mother Earth. You, well, normally you listen to your Community Spirit every Friday morning from 10 to 10.30, but today we will be on from 9 to 10.30. Um... Excitingly enough, we have a special guest. Are you special? I guess I'm special, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Co-manager of Dianpur Farm, a center, well, let's see, comprehensive center for sustainable living in Anna. Right. And we are here to talk about the 2006, huh? Oh, I didn't say your name. <laughs> Uh, Wayne Wiseman. I like you. You can say who oh, you I are. Oh, I can say that. All right. Um, well, you are with the permaculture project that puts these workshops together, correct? Partly. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Dianpur Farm is a very, very nice facility to have workshops, first of all. What is it, about 50 acres? It's 60 acres, uh from we have slope that we start up at the top of the ridge and go all the way down to the Cache River. It's about 10 acres of forest, about two acres in organic crop production, and also a renewable energy system, which actually Orr helped us install. And we're now focusing on building uh, buildings that are ecologically sound. What's the difference between ecologically and sustainably? Well, let's just say it's pretty similar. <laughs> All right. um, 
I have here a brochure for three types of workshops. First is introduction to permaculture. The second is straw bale construction. And then the last one is introduction to natural food preservation. So I guess we'll start talking about permaculture. Right. What is permaculture? Okay, I'll give you a little background on that. The word permaculture actually comes from two words, which means permanent and agriculture. And it was coined by an Australian name, uh, man named Bill Mollison in the early 80s. Uh, permanent agriculture, I don't think that could ever really exactly happen, but I think what he was talking about was more a perennial agriculture. So uh, putting uh, perennial crops in on a farm, uh, crops that don't need to be replanted every year, because most of the crops that we plant are annuals, and we're in a constant battle against weeds uh, that want to colonize a field and grow into their natural succession. In this area, we're predominantly eastern woodlands, meaning that the succession would go from an empty field all the way into what's known as a climax forest. So what Mollison was trying to do was get us to mirror the local ecosystem, to use it as our basis for any type of planting that we would do, and also looking at a comprehensive lifestyle, which would include our buildings, which would also include the way we use energy, and also the way that we raise crops, meaning food plants, medicinal plants, and utility plants that could be used for a variety of purposes. So the introduction to permaculture, we've held these workshops for the last three summers. Uh, it's a three-day workshop, and based on the time of year, we'll be out doing some hands-on work. There'll also be lectures and a lot of observation, which also will lead to work on a final design. Permaculture was put together as a, as a, uh, a design practice in order to be able to look at what we've got and be able to construct something where... Uh, basically to create a, a web of ecological energy on our farm where everything is connected, everything is utilizing everything else, and everything is offering something to everything else. So the workshops, I guess I should just keep going on with this, the workshops, uh, the first one is April 28th through 30th, and the other introduction to permaculture is September 15th through 17th. I think it would be interesting to read a quote by Bill Mollison, uh, he says that permaculture is about relationships we can create between minerals, plants, animals, and humans by the way we place them in the landscape. The aim is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically viable, which provide for their own needs, do not exploit or pollute, and are therefore sustainable in the long term. So what would be a, uh, a few examples of, sort of concrete examples of, application of permacultural design because I think a lot of people may have some idea of I think that part of what excites me about permaculture is it gets at a basic understanding of ecology that is very much growing this idea of you know permanent or perennial or sustainable agriculture but what are some uh, specifics of how exactly to go about these principles okay so some of the basic uh, methodologies are that we would really like to keep all materials on the farm, produce what we can on the farm, and also to keep them on the farm, and also to... This is very uncorporate, this is very un... what is it? Money. <laughs> what do you mean? It's not about money, or it is about money. It's not. Um, I mean, you're... you're, you're it's, do you think by doing this you're not participating in American society? No, I think we are participating <laughs> in American society, but we're just offering another uh, model. 
and another example of how things could be done by eliminating having to bring in a lot of external inputs into the farm uh, we also eliminate you know the whole cause and effect relationship of what happens there using fossil fuels etc cetera, etc cetera. we don't need to go down that line but um, some of the examples of how that happens if we create what's known as a one of the one of the mainstays of permaculture is known as a forest garden in a forest garden we're using vertical space as well as horizontal space in this country we've gotten used to these long vistas of corn rows and monocultures and little do we realize that ninety percent of all cultures around the earth have always produced all of their needs within maybe even a quarter acre surrounding their home so rather than using just horizontal space, we really want to look at vert vertical space and what Mollison calls stacking. Uh, to create forest gardens, for instance, the forest garden that we have at Diampur, some of the examples, and we're actually starting to uh, add more tree culture into, into our other forms of agriculture. But we have uh, an example of a forest garden that's 3,000 square feet and that contains over 130 species of plants in. Uh, the idea of diversity is very important. There's many reasons for that. One of the reasons, if you're t speaking in terms of economics, is that if one crop fails, then you always have another one to fall back on. And so we're always looking at diversity. And also to bring in plants that uh, attract beneficial insects, which will pretty much eat harmful insects, and also to attract other animals that will be beneficial to the landscape. Uh, if you look at the southern Illinois region, we are... Uh, in the midst of probably five or six different ecosystems that all converge here. So we like to also look at that, really understand that, all the habitats and the different biomes that we have here and be able to replicate those on the farm to bring health to the farm and health to the soil. Uh, I think the forest garden is, is a perfect model because, for instance, uh, one of the concepts that Mollison really tries to uh, use a lot is what's known as a guild. And a guild is a grouping of plants that tend to grow, grow together and help each other to grow and also to produce more, to create more yield. So, for instance, like the mulberry trees that we've allowed to grow, that grow wild here, that we've allowed to grow in our forest garden, growing up these mulberry trees are passion fruits. And all around the mulberry trees, because the cover of a mulberry tree, the canopy of a mulberry tree, emits a lot of light, we'll plant other fruiting crops around the base of the mulberry tree, and uh, it'll, it'll help to create more yield because of the sunlight. Yeah, so really, I like the idea of these forest gardens, and I've been able to see one or two, but it's, um, I think it's an idea that's really new to a lot of people. It's In a, in a way, it's building on age-old ideas, but in terms of what most people around here have seen, as you said, it's vast expanses of corn and wheat and monocultures. So I know a lot of people who have an interest in forests and also have an interest in gardens but don't realize that the two can be related. Mm -hmm. If you look at a forest and if you look at the, the uh, history of the way that this land was settled in America, it's, uh, it was always said that there was one continuous forest from the East Coast all the way out to the Mississippi River, which is entirely not true that there were always areas, open areas. Uh, what happens is during a storm, a large tree might fall down and open up the canopy again and sunlight can come in and hit the ground and then you start this idea of succession all over again. Succession would be where uh, you have a, what's known as a disturbed site. 
You have annual plants that come in and colonize the field. Then you have biennials, which are two-year plants, which usually grow as a, as a, a low-growing rosette the first year and then raise a stalk and seeds in the second year. And then you have small shrubs that come in, and then you have trees. So um, uh, in the forest, there were areas that were uh, mature forest, and there were also areas that were open. There were also interspersed within this were grasslands uh, all the way out until in certain sections is even before the Mississippi River you'd hit prairie and it was interesting to the colonists that when they had to travel through these these forests travel through the forest travel through the forest and then all of a sudden they would hit this wide open expanse of prairie and it was kind of mind-boggling and of course we know that under prairie it's the most fertile soil in the world or under the original prairies so what we're looking for in developing this tree culture is also having these uh, I guess you could call them clumps of trees and then also interspersed with, uh, you might even call it uh, prairie sections. But in those prairie sections, what, what we do is we can plant our annuals, we can plant, plant other perennials that produce food and produce medicine, produce utility plants, and also in those tree crops to replace uh, the forest trees with usable trees. So in other words... We might add a fruit tree where, let's say, a wild cherry is. We might put a cultivated cherry is. The other thing is to really pay attention to what is uh, indigenous to this area. And it's really hard to say what is indigenous because there's been so much change through the centuries from the Ice Ages all the way up until now. But we try to use what's native as much as we possibly can. If we can't use native, then we have to look at the family of plants, look at all the family of plants that are in this area, and try to use... Uh, useful plants that are also in those families and replace those that are not as useful for us. I've always wondered how hard is it to implement permaculture in a city? I mean, I could see it very easily to do in, you know, even an urban area, but um, in a city, is it possible? Yeah, in the city it's very possible. All the permaculture concepts, which I really don't have enough time to get into here, but uh, in the city, it's the same process. We examine the site, we observe it, and uh, it's recommended that we observe our site for a year if possible because we want to know what's coming into our site and what's leaving our site. And we want to try to make some changes with that. Uh, once we know that, we create a design based on our observations and based on some study that we would do. And then all of these principles of plant, especially in the city, planting vertically because of the limited amount of space would be very beneficial. Also using roof space to do that. And then if we get into some of the other areas, it's uh, collecting rainwater, uh, being able to build in a, in a, in a sustainable fashion, uh, uh, using renewables, uh, different forms of biological waste treatment. All those things can be used either on a small scale or a very large scale, urban, suburban, rural doesn't matter yes and I I yeah that is a question that has come to mind for me too but these are basic principles you know basically you observe the ecological world and how we can interact harmoniously with it and those principles still apply even in a context that has been highly uh, developed by uh, human settlements there's still you still live in the same climate zone. You still have at least a few of the species still right. uh, interjecting themselves. And in theory, if you continue with permacultural design practices, you can transform an urban setting into a 
a setting that has more biodiversity. Right. And the other thing is to look at um, f you know, different forms of pollution as not something that's a problem, but trying to find solutions and how to actually utilize it. Pollution, cars, all the different things, concrete. How do we actually use those things? So I think that, you know, if we, if we approach our land that way, looking for solutions rather than, you know, harping on the problems all the time, we actually may be able to create a healthy and balanced system. Yeah, that reminds me of a saying that I've heard from permaculture about how the problem is the solution. Right. And right. Actually, would you care to say a few more things about that? Because that's a very important principle. Okay, so problem is the solution. If we, uh, again, I'm going to go back to observation. If we go out and we observe, we notice that things are not as balanced as they possibly could be wherever we are. Things are not working in harmony together. That we really uh, have a lot of isolation of uh, different things in the in the landscape. We want to try to create and link those up. So in other words, uh, bees. Bees produce many products that we can use, including honey, including beeswax, etc. Bees also have specific needs, and once we really understand those needs and specific behaviors. So what we really need to do with that is be able to link up with something else in the landscape that can offer something to the bees in order for them to live in a healthy fashion and also to be able to utilize whatever they're giving us in a healthy fashion and be able to close the circle. It's what I would call working to close the circle. So in other words, everything sits on the circle and everything is interconnected with everything else. And I know I keep going back to these basic principles, but if we can take these basic principles of closing the circle, finding balance between the different elements in the landscape, and also uh, using very astute observation about what's already there, and uh, e even what looks like a problem area, if we can take, like I was saying before about forms of pollution, if we have a problem with sulfur, if we have a problem with acid rain, how are we going to actually utilize that sulfur in the landscape and lessen the effects of it where it just keeps dumping in one spot, one spot, one spot all the time. We cause massive amounts of pollution. Pollution. We also want to look at uh, how to recycle wastes. I know that recycling has become a big issue in the past 20 or 30 years. Of course, we'd like to get at the source of all these problems and try to stop them before they even start. But uh, there's, there's a uh, man, Michael Reynolds, out in New Mexico that builds what are known as earthships. And these are houses built out of tires. I'm sure some of you have seen those. And he also uses tin cans a lot. And he looks at tires and tin cans as a natural resource of the 21st century. <laughs> so rather than just sit on these things, to start to utilize them in some form and to build something healthy out of them. Yes, and I like the way that you put that, too. I know that many people, it's, it's only natural at times, but many people seem to make this distinction between there's the, the natural world out there and then the there's this urban world that is somehow unnatural and outside of nature, but really, it's the same, the same wind, the same sun, the same rain falling in that spot. Right. And it's not particularly useful to view it as outside of nature. Right. Because it's not. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to, I was uh, very much obsessed with plants, and I lived in New York City for a long period of time, and uh, I used to run field walks out in all the city parks in New York. Not only identifying plants, but also tracking like a animals. Like nature walk? Nature walks. And also uh, uh, more native skills and how to, use, how to use different plants and animals and things like that. 
And uh, you'd be surprised at how much wildlife and how much plant life is out there, including in the cracks in the sidewalks, including where dust has collected in gutters, including on rooftops where dust has collected and, and seeds come and plant themselves in there. Also, uh, every kind of bird you can imagine flying around New York City. In Central Park, uh, we even used to be able to track raccoons and possums and huge woodchucks all over the park. And when you got into the more outlying parks like up in the Bronx, there were many deer. There were all kinds of animals there. So, uh, and even if you want to get down to it, the rats in New York, their form of wildlife, and they have their own habitat and their own habits. So we were able to really get around the city, and it really opened the eyes to many people to, to really be able to see what's there. Yes. One of my favorite examples of that, too, as someone who grew up in an urban area, is the dandelions. You know, people, people with their front lawns get very aggravated with dandelions, but really it's, it has culinary and medicinal uses, and it's, it's a plant that sort of clues people into the fact that there is still biodiversity, even in a parking lot, for example. Right. And dandelions, it's a very interesting plant. The root, I can give you some examples of how to use it, but the root, is it's a tremendous liver tonic and it also helps to cleanse the liver also it's used to make a coffee substitute mixed with some other roots and uh, the leaf uh, helps to release water from the body and it also acts as a liver cleanser the flowers we used to coat them in batter and deep fry them for fritters they're very good the leaves uh, are very bitter but one of the one of the uh, things that we don't eat in this country a lot is bitters whereas other cultures eat a lot of them. And bitters also help to cleanse the system and to cleanse the liver and to help the digestion in the system. So dandelion greens are excellent, even though you, you just have to get used to the bitterness of them. And if you eat the small leaves, they're very good, especially right now in the spring. Yeah, and it also helps, too, if you eat them in a salad mixed with other greens. Right. Or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, does it tend to grow, do dandelions tend to grow where there's more pollution? No, no, not necessarily. It's, it's wherever there's a lot of disturbance, so a lawn is considered disturbance. We're trying to keep a lawn at its at its first phase of succession. We're constantly cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. Also, another plant that sits on lawns is called plantain. It's not the banana, but plantain, and that was called by the Indians the white man's footsteps because it was a plant that was actually, by way of Asia, brought through Europe and then brought here, and uh, it grew anywhere where white people colonized. And it actually has also a lot of medicinal and edible uses. So a lot of interesting plants out on our lawns. Yeah, I like plantain whenever you get bee sting. When or, you get a bee sting, you can poultice it and put it on the bee sting and wrap it. Or a it. cut or anything. Right. It stops the stinging or the Help. burning. Or yeah, and it'll pull poisons out and also it'll also staunch the bleeding. So, Well, we've been talking about the general principles. How about um, specific principles why would you want to do straw bale construction okay straw bale construction if we if we look at these um, overall principles a comprehensive way of living we want to try to build with materials that are renewable we all know that uh, straw can be grown every year a lot of the straw in this country ends up getting burned off a lot of it's used for uh, bedding for animals but in the pit and Straw bale construction is not a new idea. It's been around for a long time. It was uh, there were the settlers out in Nebraska and places like that used sod houses where they cut pieces of sod. And if you think what sod is, if you're cutting a big piece of sod out of the prairie, we're talking about uh, in a tall grass prairie or in a mixed prairie, very tall plants that were used for building. But also straw bales were used. Why do you use straw bales? Like I said before, it's renewable. It's inexpensive. Uh, it 
in terms of R value, which is a measure of insulation. It's one of the best insulating materials in the world. If it's sealed properly, and we're uh, on this uh, workshop that we're having, we're going to be building a cabin. Uh, it, we're going to be sealing it with earth plasters using basically clay and sand and straw. And as a final coat, adding lime to it because lime has the ability to absorb water and precipitate water. Also, the other thing about building with straw bales is that it's a breathing wall. The house is sealed, but it's also able to uh, allow air to come back and forth through it. It kind of pumps it through, and that will create health in the internal environment. One of the largest forms of pollution that we have is in the internal environments that we create, especially in this country. Everything's sealed up. There's actually no exchange of air. We have to put air exchangers into our homes in order to be able to get an exchange of air, which is a little bit absurd. And it's also an easy way to build, and anybody can do it. So uh, our workshop, which is May 11th through 14th, uh, we are in the process now of digging the footings for the straw bale, and we're going to be constructing a timber frame from the trees from our land that we're taking down in order to be able to put in a five-acre lake on the land. So we're now using those trees. What and is timber frame? Timber frame is building with uh, horizontal and vertical timbers that are joined together through through joinery that doesn't really use any nails. It used pegs. Just holes and pegs? Holes and pegs. Yes, I've seen this before. It's really interesting. You know, it's, it, looks, it reminded me of the... Uh, um, Lincoln the, logs? Yeah, the Lincoln logs, but it has right. little... These, the big lengths of wood, and then you have them carved out properly so that they fit into one another. And that way you can build very solid structures. You know, instead of having a nail holding the structure together, the entire length of wood is holding it together. Right, and we just completed a, a, a big timber frame home and meeting center at Dianpur. And uh, it took us about six months to cut all these, all these joints. Just to cut mortise, mortise and tenon joints. And they do fit together. It's a little bit complex because you have to be able to make sure that everything fits properly. But what we're doing with these trees is we're going to use them in their natural form. We have to debark them so that insects don't get under the bark. We're using them in our natural form, and that will be an internal frame in the cabin itself. And the straw bales will sit on the outside of it, and so people will be able. And so there's an there's an aesthetic side to this also, as much as there is a utilitarian aspect of it. Uh, so we will have most of the frame put up, but we're going to leave some parts of it unfinished so that when people when people come for the workshop, uh, they'll be able to get a taste of what it also means to work with wood and, and to use a traditional skill. So that is May 11th through 14th, and I guess I should talk about this one last workshop because we're running out of time. We're doing an introduction to natural food preservation, and in this introduction, it's a one-day workshop. And by the way, the straw bale construction workshop is a four-day workshop. Because you're actually building. Right. And the introduction to permaculture is a three-day workshop. So the, the food preservation workshop is a one-day. We work in our outdoor canning kitchen, and we will be getting hands-on experience in proper harvest techniques and canning and freezing, also drying and curing, long-term long storage, root cellaring, and pickling. And that will be from sunrise to sundown, and that's quite an experience because... Uh, we can raise crops all summer, but what do we do through the winter? So it's really good to be able to preserve and to have a backup for, for our needs. Okay, and so for more information, how can we get a hold of you? Okay, for more information, you can call us at Dianpur Farm. 
Uh, it's it's uh, in Anna, Illinois, and I'll give you a phone number. It's 618-893-4822. can ask for Wayne or Rafi or Deb. And also, you can write to us at Diampur Farm, all one word. That's D-A-Y-E-M-P-U-R Farm at AOL.com. And just uh, for reference, Diampur Farm actually comes from two words, which mean the most ancient of places. And also, uh, there's information hanging around town, posters and brochures, and I'm sure you're going to cross it. Website. Also, you can look uh, at the uh, Permaculture Project website. The Permaculture Project is another business that we have that's a consulting business that does design, uh, permaculture design for land bases, also teaching the the, uh, permaculture design certificate course, which we run all over the... Actually, we've been doing this all over the world now, et cetera, et cetera. And that website is www.permacultureproject.com. And if you're looking for the uh, brochures, the brochure is also posted on the website. All the dates and all the information for the courses are there. Thank you very much for coming in. Okay, thanks for having me. That was Wayne Wiseman, co-manager of Dimepoor Farm, Comprehensive Center for Sustainable Living. We will be right back.